in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. It's good to see you guys. This is a different sermon. Um, I almost always start with a narrative from scripture and build out from there, but I wanted to use a, a painting as some of our main uh, jumping off point or photo, I guess, uh, and then we'll, we'll bring in scripture a little bit more toward the middle or end. So there is a photograph that I look at every day. I, I thought it was a painting for most of my life, but it's actually a photograph. And someday when I have an office, this piece of art will absolutely hang in it, probably right above my desk. It's one of the first pieces of art I probably ever would have seen as a baby before I even knew what it meant. Uh, and I've looked at it, I think, uh, except for like maybe certain like designs or brands or something. As, as far as art, proper art goes, I've looked at it more than any piece of art in my lifetime. And if you grew up around Minnesota, or I guess other places too, but if you grew up around Minnesota, there's almost no way that you've escaped it. It's named Minnesota's official state photograph. And, um, you know, good luck going in any Lutheran or Catholic church or just about anywhere and not seeing this thing. It actually hangs in the basement of St. Mark, where we rent from when we're all meeting together. So in this photograph, and I'll show it in a bit here, um, there's an old man with white hair and a white beard, and he's sitting at this stark, barren table, and there's a loaf of bread in front of him and what looks like soup, some kind of a bowl or cup of something. It's very simple food and very reminiscent of the phrase in Scripture, give us this day our daily bread. So I'll show you uh, one version of it I have, and then eventually I'll have Nat share it. So here's a colorized version. It was taken in black and white, and then the daughter of the man who snapped this photo um, actually remembered like what color things were in the room and later in life she like specialized in like art I don't know reconstruction art something or other and she painted in the colors but I'll let Nat share you go ahead Nat and share the 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 black and white Um, this is the original oh it's disabled okay so it's not gonna it's not gonna show well uh here I'll show I'll show it to you guys for just a little bit then um so the photograph is called Grace and it has multiple meanings. Um, you know, it's saying grace. Here he is saying grace before a meal. Um, but also, you know, like the daily graces and gifts that come from God, like our daily bread. Notice there's nothing on the wall. There's really no wealth to be had there. Actually, that window is was painted in later for, for more light, but that, that wasn't there originally. Um, so yeah, there's nothing on the wall. He's not a wealthy man. It's just sort of the humble piety of a hardworking man. And he has this Bible next to him. Notice that green, I mean, in this version, green book. Uh, Notice how it's kind of got odd proportions. If you've seen dozens and dozens of Bibles in your life, the proportions of that are kind of strange. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, His glasses rest on top of the Bible. And he'd taken them off. You'll sometimes see see people do this. um, You know, people take off their hats before prayer. Sometimes people will take off their glasses as well so they can put their hands right into, or right there, their face right into their hands. Um, And, uh, here, let's see here. I'll, I'll put this down so I can focus. Um, that's where I have... Oh, now it's just showing up now. Awesome. Yeah, so that's the black and white. That's the original. It looks a little zoomed in. Um, but this is the photo as it would have been taken. But yeah, that's all right now. You can remove it now. I, I actually, this is this very spot in my notes where I have kill the screen share. <laughs> um, so this piece, when, it was, when this photograph was taken in 1918... It, uh, it really stuck in, struck a nerve. Um, it's now one of the most famous religious photographs in the world. You'll see it all over the world, even though it was snapped here in Minnesota. And it conveys so well just the simple life, right? Up early, 
working hard in what's probably a cold Minnesota fall or spring, given his kind of hefty flannel that he has on, uh, pioneer-style living. He likely did not have a very warm or comfortable place that he lived in. Um, he works hard, he eats his daily bread, reads scripture, and then goes back out to work. And, and I've always just found a, a certain beauty in looking at this photo and looking at, or kind of imagining that life. You know, it's, it's kind of cathartic just looking at it. I think if you strap like electrodes onto people's brains after they meditated on this photo for a bit, I think their pulse and their blood pressure would kind of both drop as they consider it. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know if you guys ever feel like when you were younger that maybe you had a kind of simpler devotion that mimicked that or that felt more like that. You know, maybe, I mean, some of you, um, I, I'm speaking as a, as a 33-year-old now, but I just remember in college when I also you know, still enjoyed American wealth in general. But as a college kid within our own system, you're quite poor, you have very little extra money, but you have a lot of time. And so I remember like sitting at a stark and barren table with just my simple, you know, college food before me and having these simple but really beautiful and meaningful times with God. And I always connect with that. Uh, but the, the photo is not nearly, its background is not nearly as romantic as, as it would seem. Um, does, do any of you guys know how this photograph came to be? Any, can I see like hands? Does anyone know the history? Have you ever heard about this? I don't, I don't see many hands. Um, I would like to see, has anyone seen this before? I, I'd be surprised if anyone hadn't. Okay, yeah, so everyone's seen it. Um, yeah, so I, I was thinking like, do, do you know how the photograph came to be? You know, maybe just some honest farmer that sang in the choir with the photographer, or was it just somebody from town? Uh, actually not. It's, it's quite a, an interesting story, and I find a parallel in it to real life. So the man is named Charles Wilden. He is a first-generation Swedish immigrant to the United States, and he was not just some honest farmer. He was actually a peddler of, like, junk wear. Uh, he was, you know, a more respectable version of his trade would be a merchant, uh, but he was really no good at it. And so he bought trinkets and tried to sell them, you know, for more than he bought them. Uh, but he never really had any success at it, and he was always just trying to peddle junk. Uh, he was not uh, really successful in anything in life, and he barely maintained a, a status just above homelessness. He was well-known in his community, but not for hard work at all. He was known as the person who was constantly failing, who could never finish what he started. And possibly worst of all, he was known for being the town drunk, and whatever money he could lay his hands on, he would use for drink. And he lived in, I spent way too much time researching this, uh, but he lived in what's called a sod hut, which I'd never heard of in my life. But apparently, if you live out on the prairie, before railroads and automobiles were installed you know, through the whole country, um, there was no way to get lumber to wherever you wanted to build your home before, you know, before rails and stuff, you know, and if you didn't have the money for a horse. So they couldn't build houses out of wood uh, on the prairie unless you were right next to you know, a forest. So they would actually cut sod out of the native growing weeds and grasses and cut it into sort of blocks or bricks and then make a house out of this sort of weed and tangled soil and they'd live in them. And they'd, those houses would stand sometimes for 50 or 60 years. I don't know if like all the sod would keep, like I don't know if the grasses would keep living and getting rained on and all that. I, I don't get how it worked, but somehow they'd made bricks out of this stuff and lived in a mud house. And he lived in one of those Neither he nor the photographer had a Bible near. So the, the book that you actually see in this is a dictionary. That's why the proportions are strange. Notice again, just how thick it is 
uh, for its if, if for like its two D dimensions. It's just way there's way too many pages. It's like why why would his Bible be so thick? It's because they actually grabbed the dictionary, which I just I just kind of find hilarious. Um, so yeah, they, neither of them had a Bible near, so they grabbed this dictionary. And you just kind of get a sense, like, man, is this whole thing a farce? Like, here's this pious man with a Bible, but actually he's a drunk and doesn't even have a Bible, and they're just kind of doing this pose. Uh, he was married briefly, but divorced, which would have been quite a scandal in the early 1900s. The photographer was named Eric Ernstrom, and you'll see his name. You can't in, on this version, but sometimes if you walk up really close to one, you can see his name scribbled in the bottom right. And uh, he saw this town drunk and thought, well, you know, as long as someone didn't know who he was and his reputation, this man has some really striking features. It'd be great to make a photo of him as long as, you know, people don't know who he is. And so he, uh, he you know, he chatted him up one day about coming to a studio and doing this photo shoot. And um, he, he ended up getting Wilden to sell the rights to this photo after it kind of took off and was already making money and, and famous the photographer had him sell the rights for a measly $5, which in today's money, I did the little calculation, it's 72 bucks is what he sold his rights for to this, to this photo, to use his image in the photo. And uh, it's just sad that here this man has been printed hundreds of thousands, if not you know, a million times across the world. You can see him in every continent, and he got basically a couple nights at the bar out of it. Um, and nobody knows what happened to him. Some historians have looked into it, and there are no documents after the sale of rights of the photo. The only documents that survive about him are the sale of rights and his marriage and divorce. Those are the three things that are had anywhere about him. Uh, he's buried somewhere, but nobody knows where. So he's, he's likely buried in an unmarked grave. It's the cheapest possible kind of way you know, to bury someone. Probably the church or the city took care of it just quick and cheap and didn't even keep records about it. And so take another look, having just learned all that, and just see, kind of assess your own emotion about it. What, think about how you felt before when you looked at it, and think about how you feel now, knowing the history. So I've found in my life, I found this over and over, that when you take something that's, for lack of a better term, almost feels sacred or feels enchanted, feels special, in some way, and then dissect it like this, or dig into the history, the means and methods, you know, who was involved, who stood to gain, who paid whom. Uh, it, it, it can do something to your spirit. It, it, it can feel, some people have called it disenchantment. Some people have called it distanciation, like getting, getting distant from the thing rather than sort of right there and present with it. But I think the name disenchanted is a good word for it. I think we live in a disenchanted age uh, in which we're really good. We almost specialize at deconstructing things, tearing things down, um, asking questions about power, profit, motives. You know, we're really good at that stuff, which has made us great in some ways, but also kind of dry and, and disconnected from, from a water source, you could say. And I found that this can happen with Scripture as well. You know, not itself, but maybe people's thoughts on it. So everyone has different thoughts about you know, scripture, maybe different, different denominations you've belonged to or, or different kinds of churches you've attended, leaders you've trusted, right? You can have this first impulse, this sort of first uh, feel. Um, but then as you dissect and dig and look deeper, sometimes you can be left disenchanted. 
the uh, I think for a lot of a lot of evangelicals, I remember started reading the Book of Common Prayer. I know some of you have, like me have enjoyed reading it. It's basically the Anglican's um, worship manual, and there's just a ton of prayers and um, I don't know creeds and all sorts of great stuff, just devotionals to go through. And a lot of people who felt disenchanted have almost found some enchantment in the Book of Common Prayer. And it's just funny because I, I know a lot of people who have almost a reverence for it, and I, I think I do too in some way. Um, but if I read the biography of the Book of Common Prayer, there's like a, a Princeton puts out a, a series on a biography of really important religious books. Um, and man, the people who wrote it and worked on all the editions and battled back and forth were absolutely at each other's throats. They wouldn't speak to each other. The king himself, like, got involved and directly put propaganda in there. So like still to this day, there's straight up English, like king monarchy propaganda that was to whichever side happened to control, you know, whether the more Catholic or more, or more Protestant vibe within the Anglican church, just a crazy messy history. But if all you have is the product and don't know the history, it can be life-giving, right? And it can be beautiful, but then you learn the history and it kind of becomes a little disenchanting, at least... Uh, immediately, it becomes a little disenchanting. So when you learn, when you grow up, when you sort of dig in more uh, to history, you know, when you when you watch the news and see people who claim to believe what you believe saying some really reprehensible things, it can be disenchanting. Uh, if you turn over any rock, you can find some creepy crawlers that really aren't as nice looking as, say, the top of, of the rock. Um, and then I was thinking about that, just the general trajectory of disenchantment. And then I thought about this photo and what it's actually supposed to convey. And here I thought what I took away from the photo was just a sort of simple piety. But then I remembered, I've always called this the praying man photo. Like I never, I could never remember the title, but I just always think of it as like the verb, what's happening, you know, the praying man. But the actual title is grace. And so then I was thinking about this disenchantment and then I was actually thinking about the title, grace, and it kind of, it, it blew me away. So let me read a few verses for you. Paul says in Romans, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in 1 Corinthians, he said, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I just, it, it blew me away, and I realized, like, this is the essence of the gospel, that God chooses the weak, he chooses the low, the despised, the humble. He brings to nothing those who are, who are something in the eyes of the world, so that nobody can boast in front of his presence. And it's all God, right? He's the one who saves, he's the one who makes our name great or small, or rather just makes his own name great. And it's because of him that we are in the family of faith. It's because of him that we even have this grace to worship him. He's given us a completely undeserved, unmerited grace and favor. And there's kind of a funny irony then in this photo that this man was, by the world's account, a nobody. He was the least respected person in his whole community. Um, so 
you know, his, uh, his, his life was thought ill of, and he was lost to history, buried in an unmarked grave. And many of us, if not all, the capital city fare much better by the world's standards. We have our lives, according to our communities, we have our lives much more put together. But have you guys ever seen a grave after a thousand years? If you've been to Europe, maybe you see a really ancient graveyard. Unless it's like a really important person who has a crazy, you know, shrine or big whatever, uh, a grave after a thousand years will slowly, all the chiseling will slowly just wear away from the rain. Unless it's restored, even the names off of a tombstone will slowly wear away over a thousand years. And I've, I've brought this up before that we will be utterly forgotten to history. That even our own, you know, I, I've asked this before um, at our sending church. I said, I asked for a show of hands in an auditorium of, or in a congregation of 800. I said, how many people here can name all eight of their great grandparents? And there was one person of the 800 that, that raised their hand over the, the course of the two services, which means the same for us, that our own great-grandchildren will not know our names. I mean, they carry our blood. Their, you know, parents or grandparents will have been directly, you know, helped to be, to be raised or raised by us, but they won't even know our names. And so after a thousand years, we will be utterly, utterly forgotten to history, and our names won't even be there on tombstones anymore unless someone goes through the pain to restore them. And uh, this man ironically enough, will live on. He's one, it's one of the most famous religious photographs that's ever been taken. And this man will live on, in, uh, not, not realistically, but like uh, he'll, he'll be, his, his image, his remembrance to history will live on, inspiring countless thousands, even millions, to spiritual devotion, to read their scriptures, to pray. And I thought, man, this too is like God's grace, that while we were sinners, he died for us, that while we were headed for nothingness and being totally forgotten, now we are united with him, destined for an eternity of life together, praising his name. And if we ever have any name for ourselves, it's from him and for him. So sometimes the beginnings of things seem more enchanted, uh, you know, when you can just take everything for face value, when life is kind of clear, simple, black and white. You know, as they say, ignorance is bliss. And then will come this fog as you learn more, as you dig in, as you discover kind of the naughty uh, <laughs> K-N-O-T-T-Y uh, history. It sucks like, oh man. Uh, as you discover that history of things, uh, things can become kind of foggy and disenchanted. But it's a good, even though it can be disenchanting, it's not a work that we ought to pull away from. A lot of times in evangelical churches, they'll have this sort of anti-intellectual or anti-mind um, uh, theology. Uh, but God, Jesus does remind us to love the Lord your God with all your mind as well. And so we're not just to turn that off and try to just live forever in that ignorant happiness of the beginnings of things. But we are to learn, we are to dig, to keep digging in, to wrestle with, with faith, with history, whatever it is that we're studying. But if you go through it, if you don't get lost in that fog, but if you push through it, you actually often end up with a deeper grace on the other end. And just like this photo, at first it can become disenchanting. Like, what this guy is a drunk, and you know he's just paid five dollars for this, and he's probably spent the money at the bar, and like, you know, he's in an unmarked grave, and he wasn't actually this like pious farmer. But then, if you look deeper, you can see that grace that's that's there. That he is the example of us all, right? That we're all headed for 
an unmarked grave. We are all headed for being utterly forgotten to history. But because of God's grace, we can be with him, we can praise him forever and bring glory to his name. Just like the photo of this man, he, he for all of, well, however long we're here, for all of, I guess, eternity of humans on earth, he will bring glory to God through this strange you know, photo, even though it was just one odd day in his life and he's not really remembered for anything else. Um, we will share an eternity with God, we will praise his name, and we will live in his grace. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we can break out after that with some fun questions based on this painting. Lord, we thank you for giving us a name, for giving us a hope, even though we're headed for unmarked graves, even though our own great-grandchildren will not know our names. Uh, we thank you for giving us a place, giving us a purpose, and giving us some small role in, in praising your name. We pray that you would um, humble the, the wisdom of the wise and the strength of the strong, and that you would take us normal, meager people and uh, lift us up to be used in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.